This year, we're going to start with two weeks on our vision, one on joy, one on satisfaction. And so we start, I think, asking that big existential question, like, what were we made for? Like, what am I doing here? I don't know if people really wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that. Do you guys see Evan? Evan's really good. That's the picture of gospel enjoyment and candy confetti, right? Yeah, but there is this big question of like, what am I actually made for? Why do I exist? What's the essence of my purpose? And really, the one thing that I'm going to try to labor for on your behalf this year, the main thrust of what I feel like and what we feel like we're called to communicate to you time and time again, you know, week after week, fire pit chat after fire pit chat, is this simple thing that you were made for joy. Amidst a very loud kind of well-funded, well-communicated stream of messages, like this fog that you live in, it's pretty profound. You know, like billions of dollars are spent to well-craftedly communicate to you that you were made for work, that you were made for entertainment, that you were made for consumption, made to be a producer, made to be used, made even often you're communicated to, made to be abused. You were created and put on this earth to pay a mortgage. Sometimes that's what's communicated to you. Uh, Made for debt, made for somebody else's benefit. And so in the midst of that huge, loud, well-funded, extravagant kind of cacophony of messages, we are going to say, I'm here to tell you, the Bible is here to tell you, the Spirit of God is here to tell you that you were made for joy. You were meticulously manufactured by God. You were carefully crafted. Every detail of your design is to receive the joy of the Lord and to emit that joy to those around you. Every detail of your design is to receive joy. And that's great, right? How do we get it then? Right? That sounds fantastic. How do we get it? We're going to read a passage from the Old Testament that doesn't make it into cute, like, children's Bibles. You know, it's like, whoever's manufacturing the children's Bibles, they're like, going through and they're like, we're going to cut these bits. This is one of those bits. Uh, It doesn't make it in the cool, like, nursery decor of a little child, but I think it should. I think this would be like, if you're going to paint a cool mural for your baby, I think this would be a cool mural to paint. It's, it's way off the beaten path of like Old Testament greatest hits, uh, but it is by far one of the most impactful Old Testament passages in my life. Uh, and if, if I could, I would probably preach a year on it, but I promise I'm only going to do one day for now. Maybe that's 2024's vision. It's Nehemiah chapter 8, and I want everyone to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. It comes after Ezra, which comes after First and Second Chronicles. It's, you know, before Psalms. So there, there's your alignment. And I want you to leave your Bible open today. I'm going to read a lot of it, and then I'm going to retell the story. And you should have your Bible open to be like, is Brad telling the story correctly? But also, you'll see a lot of interesting things. Even if it's on your phone, that's okay. If you didn't bring your paper version, 
It's totally okay. Just put your phone on silent, you know, in uh, airplane mode or whatever, even though you're not flying. Works everywhere. Anyway, and you can look at it the whole time. This passage comes after the people have returned from exile. The people of Israel were scattered and taken by their conquerors, and there was a remnant that was left, and they had kind of slowly started to build up the city once again. And when they all kind of get together, and it seems like the city's finally safe and secure, this is what they do. Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, Israelites had settled in their towns, but then all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him on his right stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left was Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbaradan, <laughs> Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up as well. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Beni, Sherebim, Jamin, Akub, Shabithai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send them to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Then the next day, on the second day of the month, the heads of the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law again. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in these temporary shelters during the, festi the festival of the seventh month. 
and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. And so the people went out and bought and brought back branches and built for themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the houses of God and in the square by the water gate and one by the gate of Ephraim. And the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israels had not celebrated this festival like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly a party. This is God's word. So before this moment, there is a long story, a long story of deserts, like a family, Abraham and Sarah, wandering the desert, looking for a place that God was preparing and calling them to live. A story of desert, of, of infertility and longing for promise that, that seemed like it wouldn't come. Then the promise came and there was a family. And then, then what came was betrayal and slavery of like 10 generations of slavery and bondage. And then freedom by God's opening up a path for them to be redeemed, bought and brought out of their slavery and bondage. And then brought into the desert again, wandering like wondering, God speaking, God saying, this is who you are, this is who you were made for, and all of these things, them not really understanding it. And finally, God opening up the way again for them to walk into the promised land. They walked in, this feeble nation of desert, former slave people became conquerors of a place that was promised to them. They had a kings and, and an incredible kingdom of, of prestige where all civilizations from around the world, even those that had kept them in bondage, came to learn from the kings and to see their temples and to see their palaces and to see like what they had done through God's power. Incredible, prestigious nation. And then generational decay over and over again of, of, of bad kings and divisiveness and, and neglect. The, the priests and the teachers of, of God's word were all in it just for the money and for acclaim. And, and then other nations came and conquered them, and slowly their whole civilization got withered away, withered away, until finally the city of Jerusalem was sacked and burned and destroyed. And when that happened, uh, there were some that were exiled, they were the, the well-educated, the craftsmen, the skilled people, those of like high regard, of, of renown, that the people who had conquered them thought, they're kind of worth something. So they shackled them up and they carried them out of the city. The, the Psalms writes about how they, they got to the river and they looked back to the burning rubble of the city and there they wept. And then they went into this other nation and were there for a whole generation, forgetting who they were, working for the thriving of some empire that they didn't belong to, forgetting who they were. But there was also a remnant that was left. They were the ones that those who had conquered them said, they're not worth the water and the chains to carry them through the desert back to where we're from. 
They're not even worthy of being carried away. We should just leave them here to kind of survive and die. It makes me think of this study on abuse that my counselor gave me. I don't know, everyone should have a counselor that gives you studies. Anyway, it says, in the study, it talks about how all these psychologists that have studied this thing around abuse is that the greatest abuse someone can experience in terms of the havoc wrecked on their entire lives, the the abuse that kind of messes someone up forever, the, the main one, it's not sexual abuse, even though that's pure evil. It isn't physical abuse, though that's also awful and evil. It isn't even emotional or psychological abuse that you receive from a parent. No, they said that the deepest and the most damaging wound anyone can experience is the abuse of neglect and abandonment, that you aren't even worthy of harming. You're not even worthy carrying around and experiencing the pain from somebody else. It's just neglect uh, and abandonment. That's the remnant, I think, if I could read in, you know, throughout the Bible. And so decades go by, whole generation is lost. And then Ezra, who's a teacher of the law, he's one of those smart people that was kind of brought into exile. He goes back. He goes back because he's like, there's these people, I want to remind them, I want to teach them. And he labors for 14 years just trying to get people to listen to the words of God again. And then this guy, Nehemiah, who was in the, the court, the, the realm of power of the empire that had you know, ruled them and was ruling them, he hears of the state of the city and he weeps and he's broken and he begs and pleads the emperor, can I go and just rebuild that place. And so he goes back, and Ezra and Nehemiah form this partnership. This is just like, if I had a year to preach on it, I would spend a lot of time on this, but there's a priest, a person who's called to serve through the people of God, like the church, you can imagine that. And then there's this other person called to serve and to lead God's kingdom in the like environments and the industries and the, the government of a place. I just say that so you know the greatest aim that you could have in life as you follow God isn't necessarily in this church or in an institution of the church, but it might be also like in the city. And that's something for you, like, is God calling me to be a leader and a servant in the city? Anyway, they form this partnership and they begin to rebuild and teach people how to build walls and doors so that that they won't be, you know, ransacked over and over again. Uh, Each person gets roles and responsibilities. They they teach people how to watch the city gates again. All these gifts needed, all of this laboring together, the exiles return, and they begin to slowly get resettled. But then their first thing they do is that's what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. They, in unison, as one, it says. The Hebrew is literally as one body, uh, like the the Hebrew word for soma. They get together as one body in one complete unison. They gather together collectively in their own story of tragedy and all of the things, the generational stuff that I just talked about. They gather together as one. It says around 50,000 people in chapter seven. And they gathered at the water gates. Now the water gates was the one part in the entire city where there was water, a spring, a well. It was the source of water for the entire city. It's the thing that preserved them. It's what nourished them, what washed them. It's what sustained them. It's what quenched 
their thirst and just their longing. It was that, that well, the, the water gate. They didn't gather at an altar. They didn't gather in a palace or in a government building, but they all gathered as one, kind of like protests that we've seen, but they gathered at the source of water and they demanded things from the people that were leading them. They weren't chanting for better housing or for better food. They weren't out there saying, hey, we want you know, free and fair elections. What they gathered together to chant was, Ezra, come bring the Bible out and read it to us. Read to us the story of Genesis. We want to hear and we want to understand the words that are in that book. When it says the law of Moses, it's those first five books. They're saying, read to us Genesis. Tell us the story of Exodus. Tell us the words of God in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. What we want right now in unison is to hear the words of God. And so Ezra and the scribes and the priests gather together. I know their names are really funny, but that's all to say is there was a team of people up there ready to teach and explain and read. When somebody's voice dropped, it says Ezra's voice was good from 9 a.m. to like noon, but this would have taken like 12 hours to read. Somebody else stepped up and they started teaching and they started reading. And they gathered together so that everyone could understand. And they opened the scroll and they started with praising God. Ezra praises God for that moment, for the Bible, for the words of God itself. And the people respond by saying, amen, amen. They put their heads down, their hands up, and they praise God that the words even exist. Before a word is read, they're like, God be praised because he spoke once. And he's going to speak to us again through their reading. I mean, I just kind of imagine that like you get out of your, you know, bed and you like flop open your Bible because it's like the new year and you're like, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And you start even like you flop it over. Oh my God, praise God. It exists, the words of God. And so they're there praising God that this story reveals the actions and the character of God. And they would have read for hours, 12 hours. It was read clearly, made sense to them. There was preaching so that they could understand. And then they would have ended with the book of Deuteronomy, the words that Moses proclaimed to the people in the desert right before they entered the promised land. And what Moses does at the end of Deuteronomy is is he pauses and he gives each family, each tribe of Israel, a blessing, words, affirming what God is going to do with them for generations, what their purpose is, what they're created for, all of that. And so there, after all of those hours in unison, listening to the words of God, with all of the tragedy of their generations behind them, like, all that sense of no identity, of living in tents and trying to rebuild a world, they would have heard, blessed be the children of Benjamin. And the people from the family of Benjamin would have said, that's me. I didn't know I was a blessed child. They would have heard, blessed be the children of Joseph, of Dan, of Reuben, of Judah, of Asher. They would have been like, wait, I have a name, I have an identity, I have a a meaning in God's entire plan, and and there's a blessing. It says for generation after generation, and that's, that's me. 
They would have heard them described in these ways after hearing the entire story from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth through God's redemption, through God revealing himself. They would have heard, you are the beloved of the Lord. They would have heard promises for each of them, for their thriving and their role and how they would contribute. And then the very last words they would have heard is Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 26 to 29. And just realized I didn't put it on the slide, so you're just going to have to listen to me or look it up yourself. But it said, this is what they would have, after that long day, they would have heard this. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms, and he will drive out your enemies before you, and he will say, destroy them. And so Israel, you, this is what they would have heard. Oh, this is us. You will live in safety. Jacob, you will dwell secure in a land of grain and new wine and where the heavens drop dew. And this would have been the end. Blessed are you, Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord? He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. The enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. And they heard all of that and they wept. A a weeping that continued and continued throughout the day and that that just sort of built and then crescendoed. And at that point, the, the scribes and the priests would have stopped We fulfilled your demand. We read the law of Moses. And then they said, both Ezra and Nehemiah got up together and they announced to the people, this day is holy to your God. Do not mourn or weep. Instead, they were given these instructions to go eat fatty, delicious meat. That's what it was. Go eat fatty, delicious meat. And drink really sweet wine. And open their doors and share that feast with others. Why? Because the day was holy to God. What made it holy to the Lord? It was a day of return. It was a day of listening. It was a day of drinking deeply the wells of truth. It was a day of God's reverence. A day of his restoration of these people back to remembering who they are. Because you can restore somebody and give them things, right? You can put somebody in housing, you can put them in a job, you can give them healthcare benefits, but true, genuine restoration is someone then knowing who they are and who they belong to and that they are loved. Like that's real restoration. And that's what happened on this day. And so they're saying, Nehemiah and Ezra are saying, this day, in God's view of all of history, he's saying this day is a holy day. It was a day to remember that who they were, not slaves, not exiles, not failures, not the children of failures, but children of the living God. And so they all went home and they celebrated. It says they had great joy, loud joy, literally loud joy. And they worshiped. And then the next day, the leaders of the families went and they're like, let's learn some more. And in learning some more, they found out, wait, there's supposed to be a big festival on the seventh month of each year, and we're in the seventh month of the year. We should do what God commanded. 
And it's the festival of booths where people built these big shacks. It's like, what's that thing that happens in the desert? Burning Man? It's like Burning Man, but like with God. Uh, and so they, it's this whole idea is that people would basically camp out and just worship God for seven days. And it says that had never been celebrated. From the time of Joshua, the people coming into the promised land until that day, some 500 years not obeyed. But these people, through all they had been through, restored to God, they obeyed. It's pretty fascinating. The very first obedience that they had after listening to the word was to have a party, eat really good meat or choicest of meals. And then the second command that they were to obey was now throw a party for seven days and remember God's work in your life. And so they do, they obey. And it says in verse 16, there was great joy. It's pretty great. That's the story in a year. No. Uh, And so, I mean, you might be like, wow, that's a great story. I can sense you like, that's a good story. But you might be like, couldn't you have just quoted that thing where Paul says, count it joy? Like the way to get joy is to somehow do some accounting where you move things from tragedy to the column of joy. I think that this passage, I know there's simpler ones, but it tells us the roots of how do you get joy if that's what you're made for. I think this passage says the joy comes from the word, the voice of God, the living water. It comes from being a person that has this hunger and longing like a parched person in the desert that says, I must have the words of the living God in my life. Before I establish my life, before I figure out where I'm going to live and where my kids are going to go to school and and how I'm going to pay for the things that I want to pay for, I must drink deeply of the resource that is the living God. In other words, I think joy comes from God being remembered who he is and what he's done. You cannot have joy apart from remembering, oh, this is what God is like, and these are his actions. More even specifically, it's remembering the word that was Jesus. When it says in John that the the word was pre-existing and in the beginning the word was with God and was God and all of that, and it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Joy comes from remembering and knowing Jesus. And the gospel that exists, the, the, not just the word that was made flesh, but the one who was and is and is to come, and that that God lived and died and rose again, it's coming back. And so joy must come from, to me, a people who say, I want the living water that is the words of Jesus and to be hungry and thirsty for it. And so it certainly comes from that posture, a hunger for the scriptures, the words of God, his story, remembering who he is. I think it also joy comes from knowing your story and who you are. It's hard to experience and taste joy when you're allowing all these other things to determine your identity and what it is that you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live. Joy comes from knowing that God has carried you through it and what he has named you along the way as a beloved child, as a citizen of heaven, as a treasured possession. Joy also comes from restoration. These broken, hurt, disoriented, dislocated people hearing and knowing that they are 
not just like allowed to be around the things of God, but are at the center of the things of God because they are the beloved. To be restored. You cannot have joy and walk in joy if you're resistant to the work of being restored fully to the kingdom of God. Also, then lastly, joy comes from obedience. God called them into a festival and they obeyed. I mean, something about the sovereignty of God of saying, I'm going to command this to these people. They're not going to obey it, but there is a day that they will obey and they will know joy. In the same way, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. It sounds like, I think some sort of like, wow, what a nice invitation. You know, like I'm invited to Jesus's, you know, feast or whatever. It's, act, it's a command. It's an imperative. No, no, no. You have to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. In the same way, he commands as well, carry your cross and follow me. Joy comes from obedience. And then there's just this one last thing uh, that's missing from all of those. Nehemiah says in verse 10 this incredible phrase when he's trying to plead with people not to spend their day weeping and mourning. And he gathers them together and he's like, you should party, you should do what we're telling you to do. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Or more properly articulated, maybe it's the Lord's joy. The joy that belongs to the Lord is your strength. I know this is getting in the complicated grammar, but it's like joy is possessed by God. It belongs to him. He has joy. Uh, One of the worst, if not the worst, misconceptions about God is that he is an angry, pessimistic, distant God. But the Lord, our God, whom we serve, is filled with joy and delight. In the Psalms, it says that that he knit you together for joy, a God that doesn't just delight generically, but delights in you, in each of you. Uh, In Zephaniah, it talks about how the Lord sings joyfully. The Lord rejoices over you. It's not a command like, oh, like you should have joy, but God is angry because you don't have joy. It's like, no, no, we taste and we receive joy because he is filled with it. It's like, as you think about, it's God's joy that he shares with the world when Jesus is born. The angels say joy to the world. God is giving himself joy into this world. Not, hey, you need to make sure you respond with joy. He's saying, no, no, I've put joy in the world. It's from me. It was for joy that you see in the parable of the prodigal son that the father throws this massive party. And Jesus says, the celebration of angels is ununderstandable to you. You cannot even understand the heavenly joy that exists when one lost thing returns. And what that tells me is that that God is extravagantly joyful. In Hebrews, it says that it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. 
That, that the whole, like, that Jesus was enduring the cross, he lived, he died, he was walking and mocked and beaten and destroyed, and he was doing all of it because Jesus likes joy and wants joy and was obedient to that for the sake of joy, for the sake of the joy that was to come. And this is important. <laughs> God's motivation for the gospel we see is love, that God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son. But the fuel for all creation and the promises and the incarnation, the death and the resurrection, it's all fueled by God who has joy and a delight in making all things new. God is motivated by love and the fuel for the gospel is his joy. Again, Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our joy is born out of his joy. Our joy is dependent on his joy. I think you'll never quite know and experience the joy of God until you become aware that the God you love and serve is filled with joy with you. I don't know if you will ever really, I think you can have some psychedelic happiness. You know, you can have moments in your life where all the logistics work out well, and you might think that it's joy. But the complete joy of God, you will never know until you understand that the Lord is filled with joy. That God delights in you. God delights in his mission. This is a story of God operating in the world that isn't of a God who has his arm twisted, isn't of a God who's like, well, I guess I have to love them because it's in my nature. Dang it. It's a God who says, no, I joyfully surrender my life for the resurrection of yours. When you realize these things and know it deep in your bones, God's joy for you will be a strength you never thought you could have. That's what Nehemiah is saying. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Strength to grieve. A strength to face shame. A strength to, to throw a party even though you know, like, I have not done what is required to participate in this party. But the joy of the Lord is our strength for that. The joy of the Lord is our strength to face tumultuous life. The joy of the Lord is our strength to make confession to one another that I have sinned and that I am a sinner and I'm not perfect. The joy of the Lord is our strength to face repentance, to enter into celebrations. As we said at the end of last year, you know, joy is not a feeling that you need to conjure up. It's not hyper happiness. It's something given. This is biblically. It's something given and something received. That in the Bible, joy is a possession. It's something that you have, a posture. It's a response to reality. It's something given to you by God. It's something completed by God. That's what John says in his letter. That, that, that God will complete joy in you. It's something formed inside of you by the same God who formed and shaped every atom and everything that exists. And so I encourage you today to choose joy. Choose to receive joy. Go home today and eat a good meal 
no ramen, no like leftovers. Go home and eat a good meal and drink a good drink and share it with others. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for your word. I pray that uh, we would have a hunger and a thirst for it in our body this year, that it would produce in us um, a deep satisfaction for who you are and what you're doing and what you have done. As we respond and as we take communion, I pray that we would be like the people of the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, people hungry, coming to the well, full of praise. We ask that you would do this in us, in this, in this church this year. Amen.